Wilma was not into into that. She didn't want to use the state to try to suppress communists in the U.S. She just wanted to show people that capitalism, for lack of a better term, uh, free market enterprise, economic freedom, as 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 you so wonderfully put it, uh, is is great and is the thing. So we should focus on that. And then people will see for themselves that it's better to have a smaller slice of a much bigger capitalist pie than an equal slice of a pathetic little communist pie. On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Robert Wright, historian and senior research faculty at AIER, to discuss his new book, Fearless, Will Massas and America's Forgotten Investor Movement. Robert shares details of her remarkable story as a self-made woman, journalist, PR whiz, and activist who devoted her life to reforming corporate America. A staunch supporter of free markets and economic freedom, Wilma Soss believed that the private sector was the best means to achieve personal wealth, well-being, and liberty, and the ultimate defense against collectivism. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to check out AIER's new YouTube channel here. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about your new book, which is Fearless, Wilma Soss and the Forgotten Investors Movement. Uh, this is fabulous. So I, as I was telling you off camera, I was up into the wee hours reading this until I actually had to sleep. And so I'm about halfway through the book and I really um, got wrapped up in it. It's a great story and you're a great storyteller. And I found it very inspirational. Um, so I think that maybe she's somebody that our audience might not know about, but I think that they will find inspiration in her story. So without giving away all of the details of your book, can you maybe give us kind of a broad overview of Wilma Sauce and who she is? Absolutely. So she is born in 1900 in San Francisco, California. And later on, she would say that the day she was born, the earth shook which makes sense for California. But we went back and we looked uh, not just on her birth date, but at uh, times around, you know, a couple days before and a couple days after. And there was no unusual seismic activity in San Francisco at that time. Uh, but there was a, interestingly enough, a bubonic plague uh, epidemic in San Francisco when she was born. Um, and she she came from uh, what what I've several times called a broken family, and I usually get slapped for that because that's one of the things we're not supposed to say anymore. But there was no uh, father in her life. Sometimes mm. some sources say that her father died. Other sources say that her mother got a divorce and used the dying as cover because. Back in the early 20th century, divorce was still pretty uncommon. There were a couple of states like South Dakota that were known as divorce mills where women oh. would go and they'd have to spend like six weeks and then they could hire an attorney to get a divorce via South Dakota. Uh, one of the strange parts of the U.S. You know, federal, federal system is uh, you can have these states that are 
you know, have have laws that run contrary to the to the rest of the country, and they can actually use it as a revenue source. So it's possible that her mom went to South Dakota and, and got a divorce, or maybe her father died in this bubonic plague, or or what have you. But we do know that she spent most of her childhood with her maternal grandparents in Brooklyn, New York. So she was not in San Francisco when the big quake uh, hit. Uh, she was wow. in she was in New York, but we also know that she would that her mom for a long time uh, lived in the in the Bay Area, and that she would go back to see her mother. And of course, at that time, there were only two ways to to do that. Uh, one was via steamship, uh, and the other was via trains. And we think it was via trains because she had such a love affair for trains later on in in, in her mm. life. So she's living yes. in Brooklyn with her her maternal grandparents, um, and she said once that she was born Republican. Not that she became a Republican, wow. that she was born Republican. And then I found out who her grandfather was, and I know exactly why she said that, because he worked for a life insurance company called Germania, now called Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, that I happened to write a 400-page book about uh, <laughs> back in 2005. And so I knew that this company was formed by uh, people who escaped from political persecution in Germany after the 1848 um, revolutions there that were put down. So they come to America, and almost to a man, they become Republicans because the Republican Party is just forming in the United States in the 1850s, and it's staunchly anti-slavery, and all of these German Protestants emigres from, from Germany and from the, the um, religious and political strife there were uh, very much anti-slavery. So they all become Republicans. Mm. So I'm and, oh. and stay Republican. So I'm I'm sure that her maternal grandfather, working at Germania slash Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, was a, a solid Republican um, of the old Lincolnian type Republican, not the more modern type. Um, but Wilma uh, lives until 1986, so there was certainly an evolution of the Republican Party over that time. But she she remains uh, loyal to it, um, with the Watergate exception. When, like many mm -hmm. Americans, she was like, "Now this tricky Dick Nixon guy's gotta gotta go. Um, he's just causing too much, <laughs> too 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 much trouble." But. Uh, so Wilma grows. She graduates from high school in Brooklyn, um, from one of the public schools, and then she goes to college and she flunks out. But she doesn't. Uh, it was some some business school that she never named. But she doesn't give up. She goes to the Columbia School of Journalism and gets an undergraduate degree there, and meets her husband Joseph Sauce. Uh, takes takes his name. So throughout most of her life, she was known as Wilma Sauce, S-O-S-S. Sauce rhymes with boss. Um, people who didn't like her later on called her Applesauce or Mrs. Applesauce. Uh, we have recordings of her saying her own name. 
so we know absolutely that it's pronounced sauce, not sauce or anything like that. Sauce, <laughs> um, just like yes. tomato sauce. Yeah. So she marries this uh, this fellow, and they have a you know a life lifelong love love affair. And um, he predeceases her. They never had any children, which is, and we don't know why, but this is really key to the. You know, to, to to her story because she becomes a journalist working at one of these Brooklyn newspapers. Uh, they, they used to be a dime a dozen. That's like blogs today. <laughs> you know, everybody owned a paper. Um, yeah. So she's working at one of these little things for like seven dollars a week, and she writes um, an article about uh, an actress. And her husband sees the article and is like, this woman who wrote this has talent. So she, uh, he introduced her to uh, the, the Zigfield clan of the Zigfield Follies fame. And they introduce her to uh, this uh, guy named Reichenbach, who was one of the leading um, sort of developers of the public relations field in the 1920s. So Wilma graduates in 1925 from Columbia. By 1930, she's working for this Reichenbach guy who uh, nicely for Wilma passes away. And so she doesn't live in this giant's shadow for very long. She's there. She learns the, 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 the skills. She is part of his network. So when he passes away, she's got all of these connections and people who want work done. So she builds a very successful public relations consultancy during the Great Depression as a married woman. She makes yeah. more money than her husband, Joe, and more money than most men in the, in the country. She's running her own, her own business. She had men working for her, reporting to, to her. And uh, many, many success stories. Uh, have you heard of Gladys Swarthout, for example? She was uh, an um, operatic singer in the 1930s, yes. that, and she was Wilma's um, a mezzo-soprano, I want to say, though I have no idea yes. what that means, but... Um, <laughs> Pretty high voice, maybe something. Uh, it, it it means mezzo is medium, okay. and soprano is high voice, okay. so it's a medium high Pretty voice. Pretty high yeah. voice, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, she she moved her from an unknown to making over a hundred thousand dollars a year, and a hundred thousand dollars a year in the Great Depression was serious, significant money. Yeah, yeah that's serious like being money. A, being a being a millionaire, uh, you know, today. So she she works at this and and she's just uh, you, you just you couldn't you couldn't put her down um, for a long time she worked for the International Silk Guild which was controlled by the Japanese well in 1941 guess what the Japanese do to the Silk Guild funding they pull the plug on it right so here's a major client that's gone she doesn't say oh I'm done you know it was a nice run let me just be Joe's housewife or whatever, she gets gigs in heavy industry, serving yes. as the PR consultant for Evans Products uh, outside of Detroit and um, Bud Companies, which made railroad cars in uh, Philadelphia. Right, and she managed to... Um 
to convince the military to use these gliders, right? Or at least to test them out and see if they could use them. That was Evans. That was Evans products. Yes. And yeah. uh, they, they were a ply, plywood manufacturer and they get involved in the, in the glider um, situation, which was used, you know, uh, by the military in, in the, in the second world war. Didn't work out all that great, but um, she was involved in, in that and with Evans other, products and she helped bud uh sell their their railroad cars again she has this fascination with uh with railroads and whatnot so the war ends and the founders of both bud and evans die uh she's got this thing with men dying on her <laughs> right um <laughs> But it, but it helps to drive her, her career forward because she could have just fallen into a pattern where she's working for these companies and, you know, eventually ages out and just retires and whatnot. But uh, she's looking for something to do, and B.C. Forbes comes to her and says, I need an article, and uh, I'd like you to, to write it about women in American business. This is right at the end of the Second World War, right? So there are a lot of women who are employed during the second world war, but also a lot of women who started their own, their own businesses. And he wanted a rundown on that. And Wilma gave that to him. But in the process, she also started to check corporate shareholder roles. And what she discovered was that for most of the big companies that, that she looked at, which were the largest companies in the U S a majority of the shareholders were women. Now they didn't which own a majority. Shocking, yes, right? which was completely shocking. Yeah. Uh, they didn't own a majority of the shares because there were always a f- you know a few rich guys who who owned you know huge blocks of shares. But uh, on a on a straight up basis, you know, as a stockholder, male, female, married, or an institution. Females had uh, the majority, and in, in other places, they had the plurality. So they might be 40%, um, yeah. but that's more than, than any of the, other, any of the uh, other categories. So she publishes this article in December of 1945 in Forbes uh, magazine, and it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big hit. She's sitting all of this cash that she's made. During the war, which she couldn't spend because of the rationing and whatnot, and she thinks maybe I should invest in the stock market since all these women are doing this already. She'd kind of given up on the stock market as many Americans had after the Great Crash in 1929, and her maternal grandfather, the fellow who worked for for Germania slash Guardian Life Insurance that I mentioned earlier, had left her uh, a bit of a nest egg, but had left it with a trustee. And the trustee managed to lose essentially all of it during during the Great Depression. So she did not mm-hmm. want that to happen again. She didn't want to just passively turn her money over to somebody who didn't really have uh, any skin in the game, so to speak, as Warren Buffett would, would later say, right? Who didn't have an incentive to really grow that for her. So she decided that she was going to invest directly, and she started to do so, and she bought a share in U.S. Steel, which was the largest steel manufacturer in the United States and in, in, in the world after the Second World War, and decided to go to a stockholder meeting. And she was absolutely appalled by what she saw in the whole process because yeah. it was in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is this little 
infamous rat hole over uh, across the Hudson River from New York, New York City. Uh, not very easy to get to. And yeah, most of the shareholders are in New York City. And ones coming from other parts of the country are going to be going into the transportation hub in New York City, not to Hoboken. So why is it in Hoboken? Yeah. So she shows up and there's hardly anyone there. And it turns out yeah. that uh, um, annual shareholder meetings in the United States had degraded to essentially perfunctory, pro forma, you know, hour-long ceremonies, essentially. And she didn't like that because shareholders are the owners, and they should at yeah. least know what's going on and at least be able to, to veto major steps by, by management uh, that they don't agree with. So, if I can uh, just pause you here before you continue on, just to kind of, you know, because everything that you're saying has kind of uh, run along with what I was reading from your book, and I just want to make some things kind of, you know, more clear, um, f you know, just to kind of reiterate what you're saying here is that Wilma was just this kind of ordinary individual. Didn't matter that she was a woman or a man, you know, in a sense, she just was a self-made person. You know, it, it was significant that she was a woman at the time, of course, but also like in reading your, your book, it's her attitude wasn't that she should be, you know, given preferential treatment as being a woman. She was really kind of this, um, you know, person who was advocating for everybody to have the ability uh, to take part in the, uh, uh, she was calling it the share owning process, right? Rather than the share holding process. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And she picked that up from, from BC Forbes, who was also exactly. of that, that mind. Yeah. Um, and there was something I wanted to uh, read as well, just for our audience, because I thought that this was a great quote. And this kind of encapsulates the journey that Wilma has been on so far and will continue to go on and how it relates to our audience. Um, because I thought this was quite inspirational. So BC Forbes at this time, you know, um, they were kind of um, sinking in comparison to their competitors, I guess, before Wilma came on and wrote this article, it sounds like. And so, but he had this kind of uh, motto that he went by and that he wrote in his book, Keys to Success. And I think this is a great quote. I almost want to frame it. So he says, your success depends upon you. Your happiness depends upon you. You have to steer your own course. You have to shape your own future. You must educate yourself. You have to do your own thinking. And then he says, the men who have done big things are those who are not afraid to attempt big things, who are not afraid to risk failure to gain success. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly what Wilma was doing. She was step-by-step step building a whole new career for the second half of her life. Because, uh, you know, she's part of, I guess, what's uh, come to be called the greatest generation. Uh, and it doesn't mean that every member of that generation was great. But um, there are a number of very remarkable people that came out of that early 20th century. And it's because they have this, this very mindset that uh, BC um, just, just talked about. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a great quotation. And it encapsulates... Wilma and this learning process that she's that she's going through because it's not something you're going to learn in a in a textbook, right? It's lived experience, and then she applies uh, what she knows about the world and decides that uh, you know there's there's something rotten in corporate America and that she's going to change it. 
So uh, she goes to an annual meeting and she says, we need to have qualified women on the board. It's not going to tank a corporation to have a woman on the board if she's qualified. And they, you know, they politely uh, applauded her because she had the bravery to stand up and say something at the corporate meeting, but um, they didn't listen to her. So she upped the ante and showed up in 1890s garb, a hand-me-down dress from her mother at a U.S. steel meeting. And, you know, so she sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean, this would... (laughs) A wool dress. Yeah, a long long dress and stuff I've never heard of before, longettes and bags and hats and just uh, just quite the spectacle. But she knew because she had been in the PR game and had been a journalist that she was going to attract journalists. And these corporate meetings weren't all that widely uh, covered back then, but U.S. Steel was big enough. You know, there were a couple of reporters there who reported this out. Somebody took a picture of her and it went out on the AP wire which is the equivalent of having a viral YouTube video today. Uh, So she was almost instantly famous, and she started buying uh, stocks and other uh, corporations, showing up at their annual meetings. So basically, Wilma, she said, you know, I have to uh, use this opportunity as a shareholder um, to be able to have my voice heard rather than the thinking that we have all these annual meetings in these kind of hidden kind of gunky places where nobody cares to show up. We need to actually get involved, you know, because we we partially own this company. And so she was kind of, you know, um, and this is how often uh, companies and corporations would market their products so that people would want to purchase it, right? They would say, you would be a part owner, like you will be, you know, this is part of the American dream in a sense, like you'll own part of U.S. Steel. And so then when she actually shows up, it's like, well, that's just kind of what they're saying, but that's not how they're actually behaving, right? Correct. Yes. And because she's part of this greatest generation, she's not looking just to virtue signal. Right, not that there was a Twitter back then or anything, but she's not looking just to write an op-ed and and be done with it. She thinks that this needs to be changed in order to save the United States of America from the Soviet Union and communism. Yes, because while all this is going on, the Cold War is gearing up, and she's wondering why should Americans not support communism? Right, the mass of the of the of the poor. Poorest people, why, why, why not join this thing where they claim they're going to take care of you? Well, their corporations can take care of uh, Americans as well. You buy shares in the corporation, and then it pays dividends, and you use the dividends to to buy the buy the things you need. And so, but she started to run into these barriers where these corporate director, uh, uh, corporate directors, the the chairman of the board and also the C-suite executives uh, are not really paying attention to stockholder needs. So she shows up with a couple of other corporate activists, uh, and they're derided as gadflies, as just these pesky little things, you know, that, that bother us, but they were making key points. Why is it that they hold annual meetings in Hoboken and in Flemington? Right? Who's heard of Flemington? Even a lot of people from New Jersey haven't heard of Flemington. It's just it was a it was a rail stop, and it was very inconvenient. 
so, you know, wh- why are these meetings just perfunctory? So she started showing up in these costumes that got her the publicity that she needed to help to uh, grow her nonprofit organization, which was a financial literacy organization, trying to uh, explain to people how and why to invest in the stock market and what to look out for, because they were not getting that sort of information in, in government schools at the time, and they, they don't today either. Um, and she is uh, trying, to get, trying to get reforms, and it, it happens quite quickly. Uh, by the mid-1950s, she's a household name in America. There's a Broadway play about her, turned into a movie called Solid Gold Cadillac. And the reforms that she's pushing are coming through. There are some qualified women who are being appointed to corporate boards. They start to have, corporations start to have their annual meetings in major cities and to rotate them. They start to have things like uh, lunch served so that uh, people don't want to just wrap up the, the meeting and, and go off to lunch uh, so that there could be some time for discussion and, and debate. And she would show up in these costumes, but she also show up with a stack of research materials and Robert's Rules of Order. And she would make or try to make the corporate executives to follow Robert's Rules. And there was a you know a bunch of discussions in the law review literature about whether they actually had to follow Robert's rules or or not, uh, and and so forth. But um, uh, she was so wait. What what are Robert's rules? Can you explain that? Robert's rules of orders are uh, the old uh, parliamentary rules about how a meeting is supposed to be run, and who gets to speak, and on what topics, and in what uh, what order. Um, and uh, it, it's it's the you know the Bible of of how to hold a a meeting that is um, I don't want to say democratic but that is fair to all of the participants and and a lot of board chairmen didn't follow Robert's rules. They wanted to follow their own autocratic rules. And Wilma and the other gadflies were there to stand up, literally stand up uh, at the meetings and to, to try to bring some, some order to them. And some of the uh, executives did not like that because they're not used to being told what they should do. They're used to being the ones giving orders. But as Wilma and the other gadflies would point out, uh, they're just employees of the share owners. And this one day of the year, they need to to listen to what the share owners uh, have to say in an orderly manner. So a lot of times at that point, they cut her mic. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, that gets important as these more and more people start getting on the Wilma Sauce uh, bandwagon and start showing up at, at corporate meetings, right? right. So, they, so she, she can only be heard by, you know, the couple of people around her. So she starts to bring a megaphone. And when they cut her mic, she just pulls a megaphone out and starts talking into the to the megaphone. So great. Well, then <laughs> they have Pinkerton guards, a private security force, that would escort her out. So she responds to that by hiring a very large, very intimidating female bodyguard wow. to protect her from the Pinkertons <laughs> as she's talking into the me- megaphone. Sounds like Game of Thrones. It's like Game of Thrones here. Uh, that is very interesting. I wish that uh, we had had this conversation before because I would love to uh, – <laughs> maybe for the movie version. 
Uh, dude, dude is a ga- game game of microphones yeah. who can gain access to that uh, and 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 be heard. But her her costumes were always related to her critique. They weren't just random attention getters. So when there there were all these game show scandals in the U.S. in the late 1950s on all the major networks where they were feeding the right answers to preferred contestants and whatnot, and this came out and it was a big, you know, it was a big to-do, she shows up at the NBC and CBS annual meetings dressed as a cleaning woman with a mop and a bucket uh, because she's going to clean up. Mm. Right, her 1890s garb that she wore to the U.S. Steel meeting and a couple others uh, later on. Well, why are you wearing that? Well, to match the thinking of the board of directors of U.S. Steel. Outdated. I mean, it was outdated, antiquated. Yes, she was. Uh, she's a very smart woman, um, and it, you know, she claimed she she wasn't very good at math, but she knew her accounting inside and out. And when some corporations started to put the bad news into footnotes and like four, four point font, <laughs> you know, um, she went dressed as Sherlock Holmes with an oversized magnifying glass and would say, this is so I can see the footnotes where the real story is. And then she'd go on to explain how they were using accounting ledger domain to, uh, to, to fool investors. So she was very sharp, and you, you can imagine how these men felt about this this woman showing up, and uh, you know, giving them the the, the what for, and uh, and critiquing them basically. Yeah, especially in those times, right? Like that was something yes. that was quite unheard of. Now, you know, in your book, Wilma Sauce, she comes across as somebody to me when I'm reading it, who's quite heroic, and I think that the reasons for that is like. All of these things that you're describing here, there were, it, uh, the ideas that were behind that for her really were not about kind of like, you know, the modern day uh, Wall Street movements where they are kind of commie. You know, it's, it's something that's really different here. It, it's that she wasn't against management and she wasn't against capitalism. She was pro-capitalism. Uh, she was pro free markets. She was pro, I guess, involvement, right? Of, of people getting involved in their own finances and in educating people about economic freedom. So it was really, really different. So like when you're describing all of this here, you know, that's what makes it heroic. It's not that she was there to fight the man, the capitalist, you know, she was a capitalist. She was part of it. And, and I guess she wanted to show people that if they were share owners or shareholders, that they could be part of it too. And because they were part of it, they also had a voice and they would be able to express what they thought would be better directions for some of these companies and these corporations. Is that pretty much summing it up? It is. In fact, on the letterhead of her nonprofit organization, um, it they often um, included the, the the tagline, "We're not anti labor or anti management. We are pro 
share owner. Yeah. And so can we actually um, zoom out just a little bit from her story and talk a little bit about the historical context then of having the Cold War going on, of having the Soviet Union, communism on this side, you know, uh, fascism has just been kind of battened down. And now this is post-World War II, but you have this threat of communism and you have this clash of ideologies that is still there, this you know, it's just another form of collectivism. You know, the fascists, you know, they're tucked away for now, but basically this is still ongoing. And so, um, so what did that look like for Americans at that time and for the world? What, what was the sentiment there? Well, I, I mean, it's a titanic struggle, right? Uh, and it's it's not like the U.S. Civil War where you knew who the slaveholders were and who, who the abolitionists were and so forth. You don't know who the communists necessarily are or how they're, how they're working, and that's what led to McCarthyism. Uh, but Wilma was not into, into that. She didn't want to use the state to try to suppress communists in the U.S. She just wanted to show people that capitalism, for lack of a better term, uh, free market enterprise, economic freedom, is, is, as you so wonderfully put it, uh, is, is great and is the thing. So we should focus on that. And then people will see for themselves that it's better to have a smaller slice of a much bigger capitalist pie than an equal slice of a pathetic little communist yeah. pie. And an infinite yeah. pie, right? Like that's also like part of the uh, free market argument, right? Is that that pie is infinite. You can keep growing. You can keep can increasing keep the pie. Yes. It's not just like, okay, well, we have this finite pie. And that's, you know, usually how people who want to slice up the pie in the communist fashion or the socialist fashion, they see that pie as like, you know, it can't grow anymore. So we need our fair share. And just a little side note about fair share. I was thinking about FDR, you know, who said, we need our fair share in 1933 the New Deal. Then you have Wilma Sauce, you know, who was kind of a counteracting force to that as well. And I'm bringing this up because Joe Biden now is using the same kind of verbiage as FDR. And he's been compared to FDR. And he talks a little bit about fair share and things like that, you know, and then there's the Inflation Reduction Act. All of these things, you know, are happening kind of in parallel with perhaps what we what we saw back then. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, well, I'm writing a book right now about the New Deal. I, I'm thinking about calling it the First Great Reset. Oh, wow. And there are a lot of similarities between Biden and FDR because they're both uh, autocrats who have no idea how the um, economy functions, uh, you know, too, too wealthy to really understand how, how common people uh, live. Uh, while Wilma was well-to-do and ended up living in a very you know nice neighborhood in New York City in a nice apartment and and so on and so forth, she was not uber wealthy by any any stretch of the uh, imagination. Because as you pointed out earlier, she is a self-made uh, person. She does not come from from a vast amount of of wealth. Her maternal grandfather was not the president of. Germania, right? He was just a regular, regular schlub, you know, making a decent salary, but not, uh, not, not getting rich by any stretch of the imagination. So Wilma understood things like inflation in ways that normal Americans did. And so when she, she had a uh, NBC news radio show 
called um, Pocketbook News that was nationally syndicated, ran from 1957 until 1980. But the news that Thomas Watson Jr., former chairman of International Business Machines, is being named ambassador to the Soviet Union, set off a controversy. It's a political appointment instead of a career diplomat who can speak Russian, but it may well please the Russians. I happen to have been on the receiving side of Mr. Watson's mercurial temperament on two occasions, once in Texas and once in Toronto at annual meetings years apart. Chairman Watson did not wish to answer a woman's stockholder's polite but persistent questioning. He ordered armed guards to drag her out and afterward called her a dedicated person and invited her to lunch. On the second occasion, he put her floor nominee later on the board of IBM. She was Patricia Harris, now a member of the cabinet. As a result, I wear a large white button which says, Stockholders have civil rights too. This is Wilma Sauce, spelled S-O-S-S. My pre-recorded views, as usual, are my own, and not necessarily those of the National Broadcasting Company. You have just heard Wilma Says with Wilma Sauce and her pocketbook edition of the news. So she was uh, one of the first uh, female uh, financial journalists, uh, broadcast journalists in, in the U.S. There were plenty in, in, in print but uh, in broadcast, and certainly the, the only one um, before her, to, to, um, the, the, the only one to have a quarter-century-long nationally syndicated show. I mean, she had over a million viewers on Nielsen, or listeners, uh, on the Nielsen ratings, uh, which is a large audience even today, yeah. right? If you had a video that got a million hits, you'd be, <laughs> well, she, she had a radio show 10 to 15 minutes long every week that w- had had a, a, million, a million listeners. So she had a corporate sponsorship one year with a big pharma company that I won't name, and she gave up the sponsorship, even though it was a lot of money because she wanted to retain her journalistic integrity and independence and not even seem like she might be making statements that were in the interest of the pharmaceutical industry rather than her her listeners. So she put her listeners first. Very different than today. There are there are some independent journalists still out on like Substack and whatnot, but yeah, for the most part, it's it's very different uh, from today. Uh, though she was born Republican, she was not a Republican hack. Uh, she would call them out when they were doing things that she didn't like. She was very much for the gold standard and the gold dollar. And as we started to slide off the gold dollar in the late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, she was very vocal about it. And when the great inflation hit, you know, she was writing things about like, why don't we get a tax break for this? This is a, inflation is essentially uh, a tax that no one, no legislature enacted, right? Yes. So it's unjust. It's it's taxation without representation. Why not give that back to us in the form of, um, uh, you know, a, a formal tax uh, break on on our our tax returns? And of course, that went nowhere. <laughs> but. Um, but she did articulate it, and uh, she did articulate the need for uh, the U.S. to remain on, on the gold gold dollar. And, of course, that didn't happen either. Uh, she pushed very hard for secret ballots in corporate elections because what's the sense of having an election if 
you know, people know how other people are voting because then they could be pressured to, to vote. This is especially the case with management uh, pressuring employees to vote the way management wanted rather than the way the employees might, might want. Many employees, of course, um, own shares in the corporations that they work for as part of um, ESOPs or um, uh, employer-sponsored uh, um, stock purchase programs. And uh, so she fought for that. She fought for cumulative voting where you could take all of your votes and put them all for one candidate instead of having to spread them across a slate. And that would allow minority stockholders, small stockholders like herself and her friends to maybe get somebody on the board of directors. Uh, and uh, But a lot of these reforms were rolled back after she passed away. Uh, she died in 1986, and she was effectively sort of canceled at that point. She, nobody talked about her anymore. She wasn't there, and she had a protege, but the protege was more about uh, herself. Uh, her name was Evelyn Y. Davis. There's a chapter in the book uh, about her later on. But, Fascinating character in her in her own in her own right, but not really the the sort of liberty lover that Wilma was. Wilma wasn't liberty curious. She knew about the importance of liberty and really pushed uh, for uh, more and more economic uh, freedom and for you know free markets, free enterprise, anti collectivism. Yeah. So that was the the great that. era, as you were saying, right? Is that what it was called, the great era? The the great inflation of the nineteen seventies. No, no, kind of the like greatest, the greatest generation. The greatest generation. Thank you. Sorry. Um, yes. So that you know, like it seems to me like those ideas at that point, you know, in history, they were popular. You know, which is kind of different to what we see now. And I'm sure you've seen uh, this meme that floats around that says, um, "Hard times create strong men," which maybe was that generation, and then strong times. Uh, create comfort, you know, mediocrity, weak men, and then weak men create hard times. And then it goes around and around and around again. So, you know, we seem to be in some hard times, and I think maybe they'll be getting harder. And that's a result of, you know, that cycle, that cycle going around. So maybe by the time that uh, Wilma died, you know, or when she was near the end of her life, those ideas were already kind of moving out of circulation. I, when I spoke with um, Sam Gregg, um, he wrote uh, about this as well, you know, how like in the 90s already they were moving away from profits being the main goal of corporations. And they started using these terms like inclusive, equity, all of these things, like these, um, these new words in the lexicon that we hear all the time now, you know, like they were already popping up uh, through corporations, but now in popular culture, it's right before us. So maybe this is part of what was happening with Wilma then. Right. And, and she would agree with that. She, she would probably say, um, weak, you know, weak humans rather than men, uh, <laughs> because of her, her, her insistence that of course is correct that, um, you know, while perhaps men and women shouldn't be swimming in the same competitive swimming pool, uh, certainly in business, uh, they are they're complete equals, if, if not women being better. You know, there are some books coming out about that now. Uh, and she sometimes made that argument, but she was happy with just noting 
because the, the prevailing sentiment at the time was you put a, a female on the corporate board and everyone's going to sell their stocks and the corporation's going to tank. Uh, but that did not happen, and there was no rational reason for it to happen, so long as the women being put on the boards were qualified. And she made sure of it. And in fact, sometimes they tried to put shill women on boards just to shut her up, and she was having uh, none of it, and she would actually vote against them. Yeah, so that's that's really important because... Um, nowadays, you know, we say, oh, and, and we see this with ESGs, which we spoke about in a previous podcast, right? Where they say, oh, for the governance aspect, you need to have a certain amount of this minority, of this ethnicity, of, you know, this gender, whatever it is. And it doesn't matter uh, if they are the most uh, qualified person for the position. All that matters is that kind of virtue signaling role that we say, oh, we'll give this to this person. Right. Wilma was definitely not for virtue signaling. The second half of her life, she devoted to key aspects of improving corporate governance in, in the United States and would literally stand up at corporate meetings surrounded by thousands of men and say what she felt was right. Yeah, that's wonderful. So what do you think that people can draw from this? I really suggest that they go and read your book, uh, Fearless, Will Massas, and the Forgotten Investors Movement. It's so far, like I said, wonderful. I'm really enjoying the story. So well written and so, um, so fun to read um, and inspiring. So what do you think that, that our listeners can take from Wilma's story and apply to their own lives? Well, she's uh, very inspirational, right? If you want change, you really want change, then go out and do something about it. Uh, and that doesn't mean running to the government and whining for, for some stupid law that's just going to impose costs, right? If you really want to, you need to get involved personally. You need to understand the issues inside and out before you start to, to, uh, to, to try to make, uh, try to make policy changes within corporations or, or within within government. Uh, inspirational is the, seems to be the word that comes up in interview after interview. And we are looking at uh, other outlets to get the word out. Um, of course, we're hoping for a, you know, a movie to be made about Wilma, another movie, one based more closely on, on her actual life and that takes her story all the way up to the end. Uh, and we're also looking at sort of like Tuttle Twin uh, for for juveniles stories to get her her name out and her story out to to the youngins before they you know end up getting sucked into government government schools and and brainwashed <laughs> away um, and I've I've been trying to pitch op eds and I haven't successfully landed this one yet but uh, on the notion that. Uh, reading biographies of people like Wilma is a way to increase financial literacy. It's a way to increase interest in liberty because it's such a compelling story that, you know, you're, you're not trying to hook people on esoteric uh, ideas and whatnot, right? You get people interested in her story and then they're like, oh yeah, that does make sense. If you want change, yeah. You know, form a nonprofit and 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 go for it. Use moral suasion. Yeah. Right. You're not not the uh, the heavy iron fist of the government to to do it. Yeah. Maybe I can do it too. Right. Like that's the kind of idea there. And yes. Is 
you know what, there are things here that I feel inside of me when I read this, right? So you think like I can, it, it gives you energy. There's like a life force there that we all have. And it's the life force that does combat the kind of uh, ideologies of envy and of and actually of greed and things, you know, that are about taking from other people. Um, it's that creative life force that says, you know what, I can do it. I don't need to be a victim to my circumstances. Like you were speaking earlier about Wilma, you know, people die. She could have said, okay, I'm just leaving this company or I'm just going to skate along. No, I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to do something else with it. Always, you know, um, doing something new, doing something different and moving forward, moving forward. And that's real progress, I think. Yes. Real progress. Yep. Yeah. Not progressivism. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Robert, I mean, this is wonderful. I think there's many more details in your book that we, you know, I don't want you to give away everything. I think people should go out and read this book for themselves. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with though, before, uh, before we end this uh, session today? No, I hope you enjoy the book. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is extremely well, uh, well, well written, and I can't take uh, you know all the credit for that because I do have a co-author named Janice Trafflett who was wonderful. She teaches at the Freeman School of Management at Bucknell University. Uh, had a great editor at All Seasons Press, who uh, took out some of the more wonky. Uh, long-winded uh, things that I just uh, put into this interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think it, it reads really well. And of course, the underlying story is just so so compelling of a married woman making all that money and then doing good with it, as much good as she possibly could uh, in, in her blessed life. Well, that is so wonderful. Let's leave it there, Robert. Thank you so much. And I hope to speak with you again soon on Liberty Curious. I have another book coming out called Liberty Lost. So plan on it. Sounds great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.